is from Micah chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. We continue with our study of this prophecy. Having begun last Lord's Day, continuing on now. Beginning with verse 8. Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. For her wound is incurable. For it is common to Judah. He is common to the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Declare ye it not at Gath. Weep ye not at all in the house of Afra, roll thyself in the dust. Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Saphir, having thy shame naked. The inhabitant of Zaanan came not forth in the morning of Beth Ezel. He shall receive of you his standing. For the inhabitant of Maroth waiteth carefully for good, but evil came down from the Lord into the gate of Jerusalem. O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Therefore shalt thou give presents to Moresheth Gath, the houses of Oxib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. Yet will I bring an heir unto thee, O inhabitants of Merashah. He shall come unto Adullam, the glory of Israel. Make thee bald and pull thee for thy delicate children. Enlarge thy baldness as the eagle, for they are gone into captivity from thee. Phenomenous signs of God's judgment appear in the world. How should we respond? With indifference and apathy? As if to say, I really don't have the time to think about God's judgment. I'm just too busy. With excess and pleasure? As if to say, if God's judgment is going to fall... I want to make sure I get in all the time of pleasure and all the time of good things that I possibly can. Should we respond with anger and bitterness as if to say, it's not fair, God, to bring your judgment upon us? Should we respond with doubt Or unbelief. As if to say, I just don't believe that God judges the nations and judges kingdoms today as He once did. I don't believe He does the same thing as He did in the times of the prophets. Or should we respond with pride and arrogance as if to say, Of course, heathen nations may certainly feel the sting of God's righteous judgment. 
But there are too many Christians in my country for God to judge this nation. Well, dear ones, one thing is for sure. None of the foregoing responses to the threat of God's judgment manifests the gracious and efficacious work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. Those are not the types of responses that Christians who are led by the Spirit of God will give. The responses that evidence the gracious work of God's Spirit when God threatens judgment are rather a deep humility before God. A sobering fear of the Most High God. An earnest sorrow and grief over our sin and the sin of others. A fervent pleading for the mercy of God to be shown. A renewed love and fervency for the Lord Jesus Christ. A sincere thankfulness as we reflect back at all the benefits which God has poured out upon us. A profound reverence for God's holiness. And a renewed zeal, dear ones. A renewed zeal to walk faithfully in the paths of God's revealed truth and righteousness. Such are the responses that are called forth by God's people when God threatens judgment. Last Lord's Day, we observed that God as a faithful husband convened the court, as it were, and brought a covenant lawsuit against His unfaithful bride, Israel and Judah. He brought this covenant lawsuit against His bride for her adultery in backsliding from the pure ordinances of worship which He Himself has alone the prerogative to authorize. Consider with me, just by way of review, chapter 1 and verse 5. The Lord says through the prophet Micah, For the transgression of Jacob, that is, on account of or because of the transgression of Jacob, is all this, is all this judgment that is about to fall. And for or on account of the sins of the house of Israel, what is the transgression of of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And I pause to say that that is where Jeroboam established one of the primary places of his worship which was a substitute, an imitation for the authorized worship that was found in Jerusalem, there in Samaria. And then the prophet continues in verse 5, And what are the high places of Judah? The high places that surrounded Judah, where there were many altars, 
where people offered sacrifices, offered incense to God, but God had told them, not on the high places, but in my temple alone am I to be worshipped. Are these high places, the prophet says, not at Jerusalem? And then in verse 6, the first part. Therefore, I will make Samaria as a heap of the field. And in verse 7, the first part. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces. These are the things which lead up to now the section that we approach, verses 8 through 16 of Micah chapter 1. And so this Lord's Day, we shall witness the great mourning that should accompany the Lord's impending judgment and chastisement for man's idolatry. Which, as we noted last Lord's Day, idolatry is the chief sin in our lives and in the lives of others that leads to all other sins. When we fall away from our God, we open ourselves up to every possible sin. The three main points from our text this Lord's Day are these. First of all, the grieving of God's prophet in verses 8 and 9. Second, the mercy of God's judgment in verses 10 through 15. And thirdly, the response to God's judgment in verse 16. And so, first of all, the grieving of God's prophet. Verses 8 and 9. The prophet says, Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. For her wound is incurable. For it is common to Judah. He is common to the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Micah, having delivered in verses 2 through 7, having delivered the formal lawsuit against the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, his heart now is overcome by sorrow and grief about and concerning which God is about to bring upon his people. In our English text, in verse 8, it begins with the word, therefore. And Micah explains that this mourning and this judgment that is about to fall comes from what he has already indicated concerning Israel and Judah's sin. In other words, on account of what Micah has just said, In verses 2 through 7, his response, therefore, is wailing and howling. The sorrow that overcomes the prophet of the Lord, dear ones, is not a casual case of mere regret for the visible church of the Old Testament. As if to say, oh, it's really too bad. 
It's just too bad that Israel and Judah have to endure God's judgment. But I can't really let it bother me because I've got so many more important things to take care of. See, that's not the attitude of the prophet. When God indicates his impending judgment that is about to fall. It is doubtful that more intense words could have been used to express the anguish of Micah's sorrow than what he expresses here. Wailing does not convey that just a tear or two is shed, but rather it expresses the weeping and the heart-wrenching grief and sorrow that a parent has at the death of an only child. For this is, in Zechariah 12.10, the same word that is used with regard to Israel, who will mourn, will look upon the Savior whom they have pierced, and will mourn and grieve and lament in that day as one who has lost an only child. The same word that is used here of the prophets mourning and grieving over what God is about to do to his people. Furthermore, the prophet's sorrow, dear ones, is not confined to tears and sobbing for Israel and Judah, but issues even in a loud howling like that of the dragons, or actually, more accurately, the jackals or the wolves that howl at night. The howling is like that of the owls at night that screech. Moreover, Micah portrays in this particular verse not only his own sorrow, but he also pictures in his own life what will befall the people when he says that he became stripped and naked. He was, in a sense, picturing for all of the people the mournful condition in which they would find themselves in days to come, that they would be taken into captivity, stripped and naked. The annotations of the Westminster Assembly give this brief word concerning this idea of stripped and naked when it says, namely, in my shirt or without my outward garment, which was a fashion used in times of extreme sorrow. And so it portrays basically the removal of the outward garment. The many times we find in the scriptures that the the garment, the outward garment was ripped, rend in two in times of sorrow. But here it is even removed altogether. Dear ones, the Lord's people in the first and second reformations were mightily led by the Lord out of spiritual captivity in Rome into the glorious freedom of Christ's truth and righteousness, but have since been gradually and to varying degrees subtly blinded and led back into the perverse doctrine and back into the corrupt worship of Rome. They have been led out of Babylonian captivity and they have freely walked back into that same captivity to varying degrees 
those churches that profess to be Protestant and Reformed. Arminianism, that man-made doctrine of salvation that prevails in Rome, is creeping ever so subtly back into Reformed churches. Idolatry, which is man-made worship, which rules and reigns in Rome, is creeping back into Protestant and professing Reformed churches. Indeed, the words of Psalm 137.1 ring as true today as they did in the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. From in captivity, the Jews wept as they remembered Zion, Jerusalem, the holy city of God, the ordinances which they enjoyed in the temple. And dear ones, countless number of people today weep beside the waters of Babylon when they remember Zion and Jerusalem and cry out that God would establish faithful churches in their areas. They weep. Dear ones, do we weep with them? Do we pour out our hearts to God that God would supply faithful ministers for these dear saints throughout the world? Many within this country within the United States who are separated, even though being members of our congregation, being separated because we do not have, at this point, ministers to send to them. Dear ones, I ask you as well, do you cry out and is your heart broken? over the thousands of divisions that exist in the body of Jesus Christ today. Have you stopped to consider that the judgment of God begins in the church? This is according to Peter in 1 Peter 4.17. Judgment begins in the church of God. If God will do a work in the world, He will begin with the church. If we do not feel the scourge of God's judgment and chastisement upon us, purging us, drawing us to Himself, causing us to grieve and to mourn over our sins, over our unrighteousness, over our errors, it will never be accomplished in the world at large. This is the reason as we search through the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, why we find time and time again the Lord speaking to the churches, pointing out their errors and saying to them, Repent or I will come quickly. 
I will bring my chastisement upon you for your sin and your error. I will not leave you to wander off the paths of righteousness and truth. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord, dear ones. Just as it began began in the house of the Lord and amongst His people in Israel and Judah, how can God judge the nations when His own people do not walk faithfully? Beloved, we should live in humble prayer for brethren and churches that have fallen into sin and fallen into error earnestly seeking God for their repentance and for their restoration rather than rejoicing in their fall. And that is why we find in 1 John 5.16 that if any man sees his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, the Lord says that what he's to do is to pray for him to seek God on His behalf to restore Him to the paths of truth and righteousness. Not to rejoice over Him, not to laugh at Him, not to mock Him, but to be grieved, to sorrow that He has fallen. And I'm reminded of the attitude as well as the behavior of David in Psalm 35 toward those who rose up against him as false witnesses, who even accused him of things he was not guilty of. What was his attitude toward them? He says in verse 11, False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into mine bosom. I behaved myself as though he had been my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one that mourneth for his mother. And though his prayer returned to his bosom, it did not accomplish the change that he had desired and prayed for. Yet he nevertheless prayed for those who were his false witnesses. And dear ones, if such sorrow is the duty of every Christian, if such grief when we see the judgment of God in the house of God and in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, if that is the attitude of, that is to be evident in the life of every Christian, how much more it is the duty of every minister of Jesus Christ to mourn, to weep on behalf of the people of God. Micah led the way as an example for the visible church of Israel and Judah at that time. And ministers today must be again and see themselves more like prophets than like entertainers. They must have a message from God to the people of God 
rather than trying to make the message sound funny, making it sound light and humorous, drawing people through the conviction of sin to the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may avail themselves of the rich and abundant grace that flows from the fountain that never draws, runs dry, Ministers must have an eye, dear ones, to the Word of God and an eye to the providence of God in history, uniting both, drawing from God's Word what God is doing in history. Like the prophets of old, pointing out the sins and the errors of the times. For ministers are watchmen upon the walls of Jerusalem. And, dear ones, we will be judged by how faithfully we have warned the church of impending danger in the form of error, false worship, and unrighteousness. How then can such a serious call as that to the ministry call forth such levity and lightness in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. An English minister wrote in 1656, Of all preaching in the world, I hate that preaching which tends to make the hearers laugh or to move their minds with tickling levity and affect them as stage plays used to do instead of affecting them with a holy reverence of the name of God. Jerome says, Teach in thy church not to get the applause of the people, but to set in motion the groan. The tears of the hearers are thy praises. Dear ones, Without the deep groan for our own and others' idolatry, without the painful sorrow for the threatened judgment that God would bring upon the church and upon the world at large, without sincere repentance, without crying out to Jesus Christ like blind Bartimaeus, whom you will recall, he cried out, Thou Son of David, have mercy on me. And they tried to silence him. Be quiet, you're making a nuisance of yourself. But he cried all that much louder. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. You see, without that kind of persistence, without that kind of plea on our part, there will be no mercy when God's judgment is threatened. Before moving on to the next main point, note the reason for Micah's grief in chapter 1, verse 9. We have read that section already. It speaks of the incurable wound that is present in Israel and Judah. Was it incurable because God cannot forgive? Was it incurable because God will not show mercy? 
You see, dear ones, Israel and Judah were indeed guilty of gross infidelity to the marriage covenant God had made with them. They were guilty of apostasy and falling from their Lord and God. But dear ones, they did not, nor had they committed the unpardonable sin. They could be forgiven. They could avail themselves of God's mercy. Why then was the wound incurable? Because they would not confess that they were sick and that they were in need of a physician. They would not confess their sin and cry out to God in grief and sorrow, in repentance, for the mercy of God to be bestowed upon them. They did not see themselves sick and dying and in need of a doctor. The prophet Jeremiah draws our attention to the same problem in Judah. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 22. When he asked the question, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Why aren't they healed, the prophet says? Listen as he answers the question in the next three verses. Oh, that my head were were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them. For they be all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men, and they bend their tongues like their bow for lies. But they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they know not me, saith the Lord. Yes, there's a physician. There is a doctor who can heal sin, who will have mercy upon those who turn to him. But we must turn to him. We must cry out to him. Or the wound will be incurable. And judgment will inevitably follow. Dear ones, I plead with you today on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ as His minister, I plead with you, flee the delusion of the enemy in believing that any sin you commit is either too small to bother with or too great to be forgiven. Don't fall into either trap. It is those seeming small sins Maybe sins of mere omission, but those sins of omission lead to sins of commission, 
It is omitting the duty that we owe to the Lord to have daily communion with him in his word and in prayer that eventually leads to sins of fear and worry, lust, discontentment, and even more outward types of sins. One degree, dear ones, of unfaithfulness leads to greater degrees of unfaithfulness if it is left unchecked. If we consider it to be not worth bothering with, let not the slightest sin in your life, dear ones, that God convicts you of, let it not go unconfessed and dealt with. It is the little foxes that spoil the vine. Whether the vine be your Christian life or whether the vine be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is those little foxes that get in where the big foxes can't and destroy the fruit and the vines. Beloved, those who are mighty and faithful in word and deed are without a doubt mighty and faithful in secret communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you be more faithful in all areas of your life? Begin there. Begin with faithfulness in what appears to be in our life the more small areas of simply making time, morning and evening, to spend communion with the Lord Jesus Christ in His Word and prayer. Christ cannot heal Israel or Judah if they will not turn to Him. Dear ones, it's not as though there's not grace sufficient. It's not as though there is not mercy available. We turn through all the pages of the Scripture and God is continually crying out to people, Come to Me. Turn to Me. Do not turn away and incur My wrath. But come and avail yourselves of My mercy and My grace that is available. Paul, if anyone holds himself forth as the chief of sinners. And yet he says, God had mercy on me. If you think you have committed a sin that God will not forgive, consider the Apostle Paul. David was a man after God's own heart, not because he was sinless, nor because he never fell into some grave public scandal, but because he believed and he hoped in the promised mercy of God. He took God at His word. God will forgive and have mercy and sustain and help you in your time of need. But where sin abounded, Paul says, grace did much more abound. Don't talk to me about how large, how, how significant your sins are, nor how insignificant they are.
turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. The invitation of Christ that's found in Revelation 3.20 is forever addressed to the unconverted and to the converted alike. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, the Lord Jesus says, and I will sup with him and he with me. There's the invitation. Will you accept that invitation today? Will you avail yourselves of the mercy of Christ? You do not have to be 20, 30, or 40 years old to avail yourselves of the mercy of Christ. Children, the Lord knocks on your door as well. Open your heart to Him. Avail yourselves of the mercy of Christ that is offered to you. Here is invitation today, for it goes out to the most profane fornicator, to the most self-righteous hypocrite, and to the most weak and faltering Christian. Flee to Jesus Christ, for he is a man of sorrows, and one acquainted with grief. So Isaiah says about the Lord Jesus. He knows. He's a sympathetic high priest. His sorrow wasn't because of his own sin. His grief was not on account of his own sin, but on account of yours and mine. The second main point is the mercy of God's judgment. In verses 10 through 15 of Micah chapter 1, we find these words, Declare ye it not at Gath, weep ye not at all, in the house of Afra, roll thyself in the dust. Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Saphir, having thy shame naked. The inhabitant of Zaanan came not forth in the morning of Beth Azel. He shall receive of you his standing. For the inhabitant of Maroth waiteth carefully for good. But evil came down from the Lord into the gate of Jerusalem. O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Therefore shalt thou give presents to Morish Eth Gath. The houses of Oxeb shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. Yet will I bring an heir unto thee, O inhabitant of Merashah. He shall come unto Adullam, the glory of Israel. Perhaps it may sound strange to you to speak of the mercy of God's judgment. Maybe that sounds inconsistent, contradictory to use them in the same phrase, mercy and judgment. But I speak very clearly today of the mercy of God's judgment. 
For that is what we see throughout the prophetic writings. Although the scripture clearly teaches, as in Psalm 145.17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. And because of that, his fearful judgments upon man in this life and that which is to come manifest the glory of God's unbending righteousness. God does bring forth his judgment and does display in his judgment his holiness and his righteousness. However, the Lord does not take delight in arbitrarily pouring out his judgment upon man. We find in Ezekiel 33:11 the prophet says, "Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways." For why will ye die, O house of Israel? Beloved, Calvinism and biblical Christianity do not teach that God is some maniacal fiend in heaven who takes great delight in the arbitrary suffering and judgment of men. To the contrary, Calvinism and biblical Christianity teach that the infinitely holy God delights in showing mercy to all who turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. He delights in mercy. He takes pleasure in mercy, not in the death of the wicked. In Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, listen closely to what God says he takes delight in. Who is a, a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Who is a God like this? Who delights in mercy? Consider as well what the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3. Verses 32 through 33. But though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. He does not afflict from the heart, literally. He does not afflict and gain pleasure and delight from affliction and from judgment which he brings upon man. He brings judgment because he is a holy God. 
He is a righteous God and he must be absolutely true to himself in doing so. But he delights in showing mercy. And God's judgments, dear ones, God's judgments should lead us to grief and sorrow and to avail ourselves of his mercy. Thus, we ought always to be looking for not only God's holiness and righteousness in His judgment, but we should also always be looking for God's mercy in His judgment. In Psalm 86, when God speaks of pouring out His judgment upon the enemies of Israel, He states very clearly that the reason He is doing so is that they may know that He is the Lord. He does so to drive them to Himself. To give them adequate testimony that He is the one true living God. That they have no excuse in being able to say, God reigns in heaven and has sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of the world. And David says in Psalm 119, verses 70, compared with verse 71, he says that he thanks the Lord for the affliction which he brought upon him, for the judgment he brought upon his life, because it taught him to walk in the ways of the Lord. Mercy out of judgment. In this section of Micah chapter 1, verses 10 through 15, we especially see the mercy of God displayed in His judgment in that He first announces by His prophet that judgment is about to fall upon them. If God took pleasure in the death of the wicked, dear ones, would He warn them of the severe judgment that was about to fall upon them? Does that make any sense? Why wouldn't he simply just send his judgment and his wrath without measure immediately upon them if he delighted in judgment and in the death of the wicked? He does not. But in this portion of Scripture as well as in all other portions of Scripture, we find the prophets of God speaking on behalf of the Lord saying, God will judge. This is about to happen. Giving time for repentance. Giving time for the people to turn from their wicked ways. Does that not indicate the mercy and the grace of God even in the midst of impending judgment and threatened judgment? In the case of Noah, in Genesis chapter 6, God says that his spear will not always strive with men. But he gave 125 years while Noah was building the ark, a preacher of righteousness, 125 years, even though he said every thought and imagination that comes from them is continually wicked. 
And he gave them 125 years to turn to him. Is this not a God of mercy and grace even in the midst of threatened judgment? The Lord says in Amos 3.7 that before he pours out his judgment, he reveals to the people through his prophets what is to come. And that is, dear ones, that is no reason, however, to presume upon the mercy of God as if we deserved that mercy or as if it might always, that mercy might always be available to us. We can just go on and on and on and never do anything. We cannot presume upon the mercy of God. For the apostle removes all presumption on our parts when he says in Romans chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things, referring to the sins in chapter 1, a whole litany of types of sins that deserve God's judgment. And then verse 3 of chapter 2, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things? Paul says, You who judge those who do these things, but you do them yourself. And doest the same that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? And listen to this, verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? You thought that the fact that God delayed his judgment was an indication that God condoned your sin? No, God has threatened judgment. But the fact that he does not immediately pour forth his judgment is an indication of his goodness in giving you an opportunity to repent. In this section, chapter 1 of Micah, verses 10 through 15, he mentions ten different cities and towns and villages which we will not go through verse by verse. However, I would simply point this out to you. The prophet speaks of the judgment that would come to Israel and Judah from the Assyrians and the Babylonians and he traces this judgment coming to these various cities. Now, why would he mention all of these cities if he were not giving those cities an opportunity to repent and turn to him for mercy? Very specifically, I mean, if God said, my judgment is to fall upon Edmonton, that would be a pretty clear indication that we ought to get down on our hands and knees and begin to plead for God's mercy. And yet, God's judgment is threatened for our sins as a nation, the sins of the church Judgment begins with the house of God. We ought to be, nevertheless, on our knees pleading for His mercy. <clears throat> Could not these cities 
mentioned in verses 10 through 15, could they not have been exempt from the judgment of God? Could they not have pled for the mercy of God? Could they not have been like Nineveh? Fasted, prayed, and received God's mercy and stay of God's judgment. That's what happened to Jerusalem. In the Assyrian, Assyrian invasion, King Hezekiah went and prayed that God would deliver them from the Assyrians. And God did so. God did so to Jerusalem. The Syrians did not enter into the city. But God sent his angel and destroyed 185,000 of the troops of Assyria. Because a king and a prophet within the city stood for the truth and the righteousness of God and pled for his mercy. A whole city was preserved. So the rest of all of Judah was made desolate by the Assyrians. Judah, or Jerusalem, was preserved. So the Lord, in his good and kind mercy, will do for us if we will avail ourselves of that mercy. The last main point, dear ones, is this. The response to God's judgment in verse 16. Micah 1.16 Make thee bold and pull thee for thy delicate children. Enlarge thy boldness as the eagle, for they are gone into captivity from thee. Beloved, in light of the threatened judgment of God, the prophet leads or pleads with the people to mourn, to grieve, to sorrow, and to give tangible evidence of that grief and sorrow in their lives. In that particular culture, one of the ways was to shave the head. Perhaps in our culture, in our church, in our family, the kinds of tangible evidences of sincere grief and mourning would be more prayer and fasting. Taking life much more seriously than we presently do. Spending less time in front of the television and more time in the presence of Jesus Christ. And more time catechizing our children in the knowledge of the truth. More time talking with our spouses and fellowshipping and communing with them, loving and enjoying one another. More time showing love, affection and mercy to our brethren. Perhaps these would be appropriate indications, outward indications, that our heart is broken before the Lord. I conclude, dear ones, by asking the question, what are we to learn when signs of God's judgment are all around us? The prophet Isaiah tells us what we are to learn in Isaiah 26, 9, when he says, When thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world 
will learn righteousness. They will learn how to live for the Lord. Calvin in his commentaries explains this verse by saying, By chastisements men are taught to fear God. In prosperity they forget Him, and their eyes are as it were blinded by fatness. Because if God do not with uplifted arm claim His right to rule, no man of his own accord yields obedience. Dear ones, God's judgments are indeed in the world. When you read of the impending collapse, as I did this last week, the collapse of the Japanese economy, when you hear of the Supreme Court of a covenanted nation ruling that sodomy is a protected civil right, when you hear of possible calamities that could befall the whole world due to computers not being able to interpret dated information after the year 2000, or when you see so many professing Protestant and Reformed churches buying idols from the Romish harlot in the form of man-made doctrine and man-made worship, At such a time as this, it is not time to fall asleep spiritually. It is not time to party. It is not time to pat ourselves proudly on the back for a job well done. Rather, dear ones, it is time for serious reflection. It is time for thoughtful meditation. It is time for humble soul-searching. It is time for sorrowful chest-beating for our sin and the sin of others. And it is time for speedy flight to the mercy seat of the Lord Jesus Christ for the day of the Lord's swift judgment draws near. Please stand with me in prayer. Oh, Father, melt our hearts. Our love is cold and at times even icy. Our Father, we pray that Thou would turn us from our favorite idols, from the pleasures of this life that have replaced our fervency and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, O Lord, our God, let us see that whether small in our sight or great in our sight, we must always avail ourselves the mercy of Christ for sin. Our Father, we do praise Thee that Thou hast reminded us again through Thy Word that Thou art a holy and a righteous God. Thou art not a God that we can take lightly, that we cannot spurn and treat with disdain, with negligence, ignoring the continual call which Thou hast extended to us to come to Thee and to avail ourselves of Thee. 
But Father, there will even come a time when that mercy will not be available if we do not call now when thou mayest be found. If we do not call when thou dost speak unto us, when thou dost incline our heart unto thee, we will not call when thou art far from us and when thy judgment is even upon us. O Father, we pray that thou would turn thy church, this congregation and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ visible throughout the world. Turn thy church to thyself. Cause thy church, O Lord, to live before thee in sorrow and grief over the sin that has been committed against thee. Father, judgment begins in the house of God. And Lord, let us avail ourselves of much grief and sorrow, weeping that thou would show us thy mercy. For indeed, the days are wicked and evil. But Father, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is mighty to the salvation of souls and even to the salvation of the entire earth. For thy, for thy gospel is sufficient. Thy Son is sufficient. Thy Spirit is sufficient. It is our faith, Father, that is weak. Help thou our unbelief. Turn us to thyself, we pray. For we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.